You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Marlene. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm good, thank you. And you? Good. I can't complain. Let me introduce <laughs> us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcasts. You are Marlene Laurel. Uh, you are at George Washington University. More specifically, you are, let's get the title right, you're director, you're director of a number of things. I'm just going to mention one. You're director of the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at GWU's Elliott School for International Relations. You've uh, written a number, or international affairs, sorry, you've written a number of books, uh, including, uh, I guess most recently, one called Is Russia Fascist? Unraveling Propaganda East and West. Um, also one called Russian nationalism. We're certainly going to talk about uh, both uh, fascism and, and nationalism in the course of this. Um, I wanted to start out by asking you something about the the uh, kind of the psychology surrounding the Ukraine war. When Putin launched it, uh, he said one of the goals was the denazification of Ukraine. And I think that um, caught a lot of Americans by surprise. They hadn't thought of Ukraine as a Nazi country. Um, and initially, the media coverage about that was kind of like, well, he's hallucinating more or less. I mean, you know, Ukraine has a Jewish president. What's he talking about? Then you started reading a little about, well, there is this, this Azov Brigade. It is part of the Ukrainian military. It used to be a militia. Now it's part of the military. It has a far right history. There may be some neo-Nazi elements still in it. Um, and I think that's about where the conversation is right now in America, as far as mainstream media coverage goes. But I, I think most Americans, including me, still don't have a very clear idea of what exactly Putin had in mind, why that might have, what he said might have resonated with the Russian public, if it would have. Um, and so I was, I was just going to ask if you could uh, shed some light on that. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point to try to to unpack. So saying that Ukraine has a kind of Nazi past or a Nazi present, it's a very old Soviet trope that was existing during all the Cold War decades of, of, of projecting on Ukraine the fact that, of course, during the Second World War, all the occupied territory had collaborationist uh, uh, groups and Ukraine had a very strong one. And then there was a Ukrainian guerrilla fighting against the Soviet regime. And so during all the 50s, 60s, until the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was this image of Ukrainians nationalists being associated with Nazi Germany and also a kind of old Soviet trope of it's the CIA or the US that are in fact funding the fire right in Europe and especially in Ukraine as a tool to fight against communism or against today's Russia. So, so he has reactivated that kind of old Soviet theme. And then he has also put that in conjunction with or in conjecture with the, the cult of the Second World War being really mm -hmm. one of the key kind of social consensus in today's Russia. And that has reached such a kind of level of it's almost a sacred, holy event now that it has been articulated like if the war now what the kind of the a new Second World War that the Russia would be doing once again, again the revival of Nazi with all this idea or inspiration, like like a suggestion that 
It's in Ukraine, but in fact, it's funded by Europe and by the US to fight against Russia. So it's it's a lot of different cultural elements that got articulated into this really crazy notion of denazification of Ukraine. Okay, so so World War II is in 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 Russian psychology this great moment of Russian heroism where they uh, first of all took a huge toll in terms of of death and suffering but helped turn the tide against Nazi Germany. One thing I've heard is that, although in, in America and Europe, of course, the, the primary kind of bigotry associated with Nazism is anti-Semitism. I mean, we're aware that there were, there were other groups that, that suffered as well, the Roma, homosexuals, and so on. But, but, but fundamentally, we think of anti-Semitism. I've heard that in Russia, it's Nazism is thought of more as like an anti-Russian ideology. Is that overstating the way they, they think of it? No, and, and in, in Russian, it's called the Great Patriotic War, yeah. right? So it's really the way it is interpreted as Nazi Germany invading the Soviet Union and the Soviet people having such a high toll of this. And inside the Soviet people, they include Jewish Soviet citizens, but they are interpreted mostly as being Soviet citizens for those, of, those who were Soviet citizens that just as being Jews. And it's only recently that the Holocaust really became much more part of the general Russian narrative about the war, but it was not the case in this by Soviet tradition. Not that they were negating or denying the right. Holocaust, they were not, but it was just, yeah, it was not part of the general kind of uh, uh, public opinion vision of the war. Now, did I understand you correctly a second ago to suggest that the, the theme of Nazism, Putin's theme of kind of Nazism in Ukraine is connected to what is clearly a big theme of his in framing this war, which is that he's not just fighting Ukraine. He's fighting the American empire. He's fighting Europe. Um, is, so, so is there a, is there a, uh, a connection between, between those two? Because that certainly wouldn't occur to Americans. I mean, we fought Nazis during World War II as well. Um, so, but, but but that is, did I get that right? There's there's a connection yes. there? Yes, there is a connection. And, and it's also an old Soviet connection of saying that post-war far right was largely funded by the US and by the CIA as a strategy to fight against communism. And the way it is articulated now, it's really the idea, and, and Putin had it very clearly, in fact, presented in his, February 21st and February 24th speeches announcing or justifying the war, that it's both a war against Western imperialism or Western normative pressure by expanding NATO and a war against the Nazification of Ukraine, what he called the Nazification of Ukraine, because both are the same. Both are exactly articulated. So Nazi, in, so in, in the Russian mm -hmm. vision, this Nazi group in Ukraine are funded by the U.S. as a tool to kind of uh, uh, um, disconnect Ukraine from Russia and turn it toward the West and toward NATO expansion. So it's this idea that NATO expansion and funding far right are connected. That's a very old also communist uh, uh, theme that we had during the Cold War. So, so when you say that the Soviets said that, that the West was funding the far right, you mean the far right within the Soviet Union? The, the, no, the far, far right, right in Europe. E e e even after the war, the what far right? I mean, what was the far right in Europe after World War II? What what uh, 
where there was very strong far-right movement uh, uh, in France, in Italy, there was far-right groups also in the US. So it's this, mm-hmm. uh, this kind of communist or Soviet idea that the US has been supporting far-right groups to fight against communism. So it's a kind of McCarthyism, you know, pushed to the extreme. And then all the strategies of tensions during the Cold War were indeed NATO or CIA or whatever in the West were kind of pushing anti-communist narrative. And this anti-communist narrative mm-hmm. were very often brought by, by far-right group. Also, don't forget, there was a lot of Russian, Ukrainians, and other Soviet groups that were in exile in Europe and in the US that were very often strong nationalist movement, very anti-Soviet, anti-communist one. And they mm-hmm. were also instrumentalized by the US as a tool of anti-communism. So it's all this kind of long legacy it's both real, real historical fact and mythology at the same time, kind of put together and articulated in the current condition of Ukraine shouldn't join the West. Uh huh. So okay, so so from the beginning, of course, the the uh, the Nazis had been very anti-Bolshevik, and and so it's it's uh, it makes sense that there was long-standing opposition to Nazism in the Soviet Union. And then I, I gather, and I didn't know this before, but after World War II, uh, when when the West and the US emerged as this big Cold War enemy, uh, Russia just kind of fused the two, saw them as a single thing. And, and I think you use the term McCarthyism. Were you, were you saying that that was kind of the way we tended to connect internal dissent in America, for example, or or uh, leftist movements in third world countries with Russia during the Cold War and tended to see sometimes more of a connection than there actually was. Exactly. And I think the Russian side is projecting or the Soviet side was projecting exactly the same the same thing. So if you are far right, it's because you are funded by the US the same way that if you were leftist during Cold War period, mm-hmm. you were probably connected to the Soviet Union in one way or another. And of course, in, co- in both cases, there was an element of truth. I mean, the, U- the U.S. was willing to fund anti-Soviet, <laughs> anti-communist movements in a number of countries, regardless of whether they were, you know, good liberal Democrats like us, right? We, 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 we chose uh, allies of convenience. Exactly. And the U.S. have been funding a lot of far-right dictatorial military regime in Latin America, for example, to avoid the left to win. So all this this memory of this Cold War decades have been kind of reactivated by the Putin's regime now. So does this help explain why the Ukraine war at this point at least seems to be very popular in Russia? First of all, do you agree that it is? I mean, that's the data we have seems to suggest that it is. Yeah, so that's that's a complicated question because, as you know, the surveys are, it's forbidden to talk about the war in Russia. We talk <laughs> only about special operation in the Donbass. So when people approve in surveys, they are approving the special operation, not the war. They are approving what they see on television. And I'm watching Russian television. I can tell you what you see on Russian television is really not what we see. So they are approving what they see on the Russian television, which is a very, very light version, of course, of of the war that is really happening. So they are approving that. Then you have a high level of people who probably disapprove, but don't want to say it. Right. So so and then you have people who may approve some elements, but are afraid of the war globally. And so you have a lot of nuances to bring. But I would say that, yeah, more or less, probably half of the population is in support in a kind of passive way 
of the war and maybe half are like kind of less convinced but don't want to say it and so on so so it's a kind of mixed bag and it's difficult to to really entangle everything because we cannot really people cannot speak freely anymore so it's difficult to really understand what they have in mind which kind of information they really receive do they have more information that they want to recognize they have but they just don't want to see it because it's a very difficult painful mm-hmm. Uh, uh, things to accept that Ukraine, uh, that Russia is the aggressor, and so on. So, so it's difficult to know exactly the level of approval of the Russian society for the war, or at least what they see, or what they know of the war. And what what does the war look like to them on TV? And and I guess we sh- we should say I gather there are different demographics in Russia. Younger, more cosmopolitan people use the internet more, but I, I gather there's still a lot of people who rely pretty heavily on TV, which is very heavily state controlled. I, I have seen some clips suggesting, you know, some pretty clear cut references to something that sounds like a war, like like they, um, a, a, including some people who are calling for a more vigorous version of it. It almost sounds like on state TV, but uh, w- what? If we were to confine the discussion to people who are kind of dependent on on old fashioned media, what are they seeing? What do you think their conception is of what's going on in Ukraine? I mean, they know there's military conflict, right? So they know that the Russian army is in the Donbass defending ethnic Russians against uh, genocide coming from the Ukrainian army. And they know that Russia is bombing military installation in different cities in Ukraine, but they don't see the destruction of cities. They don't see the the civilians targeting, being targeted. They don't see that aspect. They see military uh, 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 bombing and the defense of the, 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 the Russians in the Donbass. That's the version they have. But as you said, there is a kind of party of war at the Kremlin that is pushing for a much more radical version. So there are probably tension inside the Russian elites about the level to which they want to push the war. You know, and I wonder when I watch state TV, is it all a puppet show? In other words, if, if we see some somebody who sounds like a hardcore militarist saying, we need to go all the way here, we, we, you know, suggesting that they need a full-scale mobilization or something, is that in other words, does that maybe represent trouble for Putin, like like forces he's not entirely in control of? Or is the whole thing just just a puppet show? And what that means is that he wants to activate that voice. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I don't think it's a puppet show. I think the way the Putin's regime has been built over the year is exactly to have like different faction fighting with each other, testing, you know, the ground to see if it seems to work with the population, if the other faction are reacting or, or accepting or refusing. And then it's working as a kind of, you know, above the, the faction kind of arbitrage mechanism. And I think this kind of party of war is a, is a genuine one. That is, there are really people who think that, okay, we should take everything of Ukraine up to Lviv and we can make it. And then you have much more realistic part of section of the Kremlin who said, well, it didn't work well the first six weeks. So now we have this kind of more limited strategies mm-hmm. of taking the Donbass and trying to make it look like it will be a victory. So I think that are genuine tensions that are there. 
and that are kind of playing around and, and depending the kind of assessment Putin is receiving, which seems also to be very complicated because clearly he was not receiving the right assessment, at least at the beginning of the war, they are different factions and I think they are genuine. Mm -hmm. And right now Putin seems to be, it sounds like he is with the kind of Donbass only faction, or at least it's a little broader than the Donbass. I mean, I guess they, they, they would like to hang on to this land bridge to Crimea. Uh, there are, you know, they, they actually have a lot of territory up around Kharkiv, uh, and, and I don't know why they would want to let go of that, but, uh, but it, right now Putin is talking as if he doesn't, as if he plans to go to the, to the full extent of these two provinces, right? Luhansk and Donetsk, but we, he's talking as if he would stop there, right? But yeah, and so that's of course one of the ambiguities, and I don't think there are there is good answer because I think on on the Russian side it's also unclear. They want the two provinces and indeed the southern part of the Azov Sea, so they can make the connection between Crimea and the Donbas. But if they get that and secure that, will they consider it's enough, or will they kind of think, okay, we secure that now, let's move to Odessa, let's try to really get Kharkiv. We don't really know, and I think they don't know themselves. They we, they are just adjusting, and they can continue to play for pretty long, depending if they feel they have enough resources to go further or not. Mm -hmm. And now, I think they haven't decided, so we cannot really kind of try to, you know, do forecasts because it's it's all in flux. Okay, uh, you mentioned genocide. His his ref his allegations of, of attempted genocide by the Ukrainians. I gather that refers mainly to an alleged attempt to kind of extinguish the language and culture of ethnic Russians within Ukraine? Because there has also been killing on both sides of that, that border in the Donbass. But I, is he mainly referring to an attempt to extinguish culture? I think it's ambiguous. He's both referring to so the fact that there was indeed tension on the borderline between of the, the, the Donbass after 2014, where indeed you had... Russians who, I mean, ethnic Russians, Ukrainian citizens who got killed on both sides of the lines, I mean, both by Russian and by Ukrainian forces. And then he's also referring to a more kind of cultural aspect of, of Ukraine moving toward Ukrainization linguistically and culturally and kind of pushing away legislation that would protect Russian language, access to Russian media, Russian culture. So I think it's both are mixed. On the Russian television, is very much about the Donbass itself and people in villages who got killed by Ukrainian forces during the, the post-Crimea time. But it's also this global vision that Ukraine is becoming Ukraini Ukrainized and is kind of pushing away its, its kind of the, the Russian cultural aspect. Mm -hmm. And do you have any sense for how widespread the, the concern is within Russia for the plight of ethnic Russians or native Russian speakers within within Ukraine. I mean, has there been a lot of concern about that? Uh, well, before 2014, when there was the, uh, depending on who's describing it, the revolution or the coup, um, and, and for that matter, since 2014, uh, do you have a, a sense for whether there's just just kind of naturally a whole lot of sentiment in favor of the, the Russian speakers in the Donbass? Yeah, it seems from the surveys we have that a large, for a large part of the Russian population, they consider that Russians are mistreated in Ukraine. 
mm-hmm. and they are mistreated like physically or just culturally mistreated. And that has been increasing after 2014 during uh, Poroshenko time, but even with Zelensky. And so the Ru- Russian television has been really very regularly kind of producing, re- you know, documentary films and, and so on, showing how much they are pushing away everything related to Russian culture, Soviet past, and ethnic Russians themselves. So that seems to be pretty largely kind of considered as a reality for the, the majority of the Russian population. Okay. Um, so let's, as I said, you know, your, your, uh, two of your books include references to respectively fascism and, and nationalism. Um, why don't we talk a little about uh, Putin's ideology starting out with the sense in which, if any, in which he is a nationalist. Now, when when Trump came to came to power in the US, uh, there was a lot of kind of loose association made between American ethno-nationalists was the term, and ethno-nationalists around the world. And often that was taken to include uh, Putin, uh, maybe the Le Pen movement in, in, in France, uh, and, and, and so on. How, how would you, uh, and, and by the way, and of course, after Steve Bannon left the administration, he went over to Europe and tried to actually knit together an actual network of some kind of nationalists. I don't know if he uses the term ethno-nationalist, he probably doesn't. But what, uh, and then to kind of fast forward to uh, right before the Ukraine war, Putin um, gave these, a couple of speeches and 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 they kind of freaked people out and you know and and uh people started talking him about him having a grand conception of Russia's national destiny which would involve the acquisition of additional territory so what with that as backdrop what would you say about the sense in which Putin is and isn't uh, a nationalist yeah, it's a great question, and it's really a complicated one, depending how we want to define nationalism, and if it's for inside Russian society or for export. If it's inside the Russian Federation, Putin is not a nationalist, an ethno-nationalist. He always defended, protected, tried to integrate in his rhetoric the minority that are living in Russia, like the, the non-ethnic uh, uh, Russian citizen. The, so the Muslim ones, for Chechnya, for example, is well. Chechnya is a specific case because yeah, it I has mean there, been, there has yeah. been resistance, but broadly speaking, the the Caucasus, uh, those are they're not Slavic. Yes, but he wants to consider them part of Russia. Yes, and you have also in the Volga region, so really in the middle of Russia, you have other kind of Turkic Muslim population, Tatar and Bashkir. You have a lot of small ethnic groups in Siberia that are close to more uh, Asian or, or Mongol uh, um, uh, cultural groups that are Buddhist, so a lot of Muslims. So all those are kind of integrated and recognized, and Putin has several, several times said that he doesn't want ethnic Russian nationalism to dominate that Russia is a kind of, you know, a, a symbiosis of different ethnic groups living together in peace. So he has this aspect. But when he's talking about Ukraine and Belarus, he has a kind of Eastern Slavic nationalism with this idea that, okay, Russia, Ukrainian, and Belarus are more or less one and the same people having the same history the same religiosity, so Orthodox Christianity, and they should work together and belong more or less 
maybe to different countries, but at least to one geopolitical group. So he has a kind of non-ethno-nationalism from inside, but kind of Slavic nationalism toward Ukraine. And that, okay. and that is articulated with this idea that Russia is a kind of civilization and that it needs its geopolitical space, its sphere of influence, it needs to have other nations going with it. So that's the way it is framed. And then the link with like Le Pen or, or, or Trump and so on, it's a much more kind of what I call illiberal. I think illiberal works better than to define them as ethno-nationalist. So it's this idea that nation states should be sovereign and then nations should be culturally homogeneous. You can have migrants, you can have minorities, but they need to integrate and assimilate. There shouldn't be any kind of multiculturalism. So that's the ideology that Russia is selling to export to European far-right and populist movement and to the, to the American one. So you see, Russia is playing different kinds of identities depending if it's talking to its own population, speaking about Ukraine or talking about the kind of uh, European populist and, and American populist movement. So domestically, he doesn't emphasize kind of cultural assimilation, the, the, the importance of cultural assimilation among uh, of, of minorities, but uh, he likes to appeal to people abroad who do emphasize that? Yes. Yeah, so at home, it's a complex narrative. So he's saying like ethnic Russian are the core of the nation, mm -hmm. but the nation is a civic nation that has different ethnic elements in it, and every ethnic element has its legitimacy if they accept to be under the kind of cultural symbolic domination of the ethnic Russian core. So it's a kind of, you know, it's, you know, this Russian uh, uh, um, uh, matryoshka, like dolls. So it's that Russian you have dolls, the big yeah. dolls. Yeah, yeah. And mm. that is Russia, ethnic Russians. And then you have the right to be one of the small dolls, but you are inside the big Russian dolls. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned sphere of influence. Uh, you know, certain international relations scholars like realists, they would talk about Putin's interest in Ukraine in those terms, that, that just as a matter of national security, a, a great power uh, wants to have a certain amount of control over its neighborhood and would and, and for that reason feels threatened by NATO expansion into Ukraine. Um, and they would talk about Georgia in somewhat the same terms. And Putin is sensitive about NATO expansion into Georgia. Uh, and I guess maybe you're suggesting that one reason, and of course, there are a lot of differences between the two. Ukraine is is bigger. You know, it is more of the direct bridge to uh, Eastern Europe. There, there are lots of reasons you can imagine him caring a little more about Ukraine than about Georgia, although clearly he cares about both. Um, but you're suggesting that there's also, because of the Slavic connection, I mean, again, Georgians are not, are Georgian Slavs? No, they are not Slavs. They are not. also so, not so, Christian, but they are not Slavs. So, so, um, so you're saying there's there's a special ingredient with Ukraine in terms of his uh, the emphasis he puts on it and the attraction of the of the Russian people to it. I guess. Yeah, I think the, the there is a weird or a difficult combination between the strategic arguments about not wanting the NATO expansion and the kind of the cultural relationship to Ukraine. And for long, I think Putin just really cared about the sphere of influence, just really cared about being sure that Ukraine will not join NATO or the EU. And that was really his main concern and the main concern for the, the Russian elites. Mm -hmm. But then in a sense, the more they were feeling they were losing 
the control of the sphere of influence and that the US and the West didn't want it to recognize Russia's kind of sphere of influence, the more it kind of created a, what I call the reactive imperialism. Mm. That is that if they could have kept it Ukraine as a sphere of influence without conquering it territorially, without being at war, but just having a kind of gentleman agreement with the US that, okay, Ukraine is staying in Russia's kind of sphere of influence, that would have been good for them. But mm -hmm. because they failed at that, in a sense, it's kind of the only things they could still do was to kind of reactivate this old imperialism that was much more about the cultural connection and that seems to be now much more about like conquering mm -hmm. territories to kind of avoid Ukraine to move toward the West. So for me, it's a reactive imperialism as a result of the failure of the sphere of influence negotiation. Okay, so that's a little different from the story a lot of people are telling. I mean, to get back to that speech he gave uh, it, before uh, the invasion, the first of the two speeches, I think a lot of people listened to that and thought, oh, wow, he's he's had this ambition for decades. And now it's finally becoming clear. We're start finally starting to pay attention. He's always had this idea of restoring the Russian empire or something. But you're suggesting that actually that is a response to not only NATO expansion, it's also presumably a response to Ukraine's attraction to the EU and his failure to head that off and so on. But it is it is a reaction to things as opposed to some mystical vision that had possessed him ever since he was a teenager or something, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the vision that he always had was that Russia should regain its great power, status and recognition. But there are many ways of being a great power. And for long, he thought that Russia would succeed as being a great power in a more kind of modern, you know, globalized way of great power with a soft power that would be enough to keep Ukraine and, and Georgia and all the other in, in the, the, the Russia sphere of influence and that the West would say, yeah, okay, you can keep that and, and we keep NATO as it is, we don't expand. So I think he really thought that great power mechanism would work. And then it's only a kind of gradually that a resentment of or the, the result of the failure of getting that kind of reactivity, the, the more traditional imperialism. I don't think it was there at the beginning. I think he was really hoping or projecting that Russia had moved forward and would get the same results, but by more modern and, and soft power-oriented means. Yeah. How, how much do you think we could say this is almost as simple as being about respect? And, uh, you know, Russia, the, the idea being that, that, that Russia has historically been, in a sense, a great power for a long time. The Soviet Union was a great power. And then after the Cold War, they, you know, as people do uh, who are accustomed to a certain amount of respect, they wanted respect. Uh, and I, I, you know, Putin has been depicted as somebody himself who has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder and is very sensitive to signs of disrespect personally. How, mu how much, uh, how useful a frame is that for looking at the trouble we're in now? I think it's an important fr frame, and it's it's telling us a lot about Putin himself, but also about the Russian political elites globally. The, they, they often have this narrative of, yeah, like disrespect, uh, loss of dignity, not being recognized, you know, wanted to join some form of uh, uh, Europeanization, Westernization, and not being given that. 
and mm-hmm. and of course, I mean, if you come from Central Europe, you would say, well, stop the joke. They got, were giving that, and they just it was not enough for them. But the Russian elites and and Putin himself, I I, I think, are pretty kind of. It's a pretty genuine feeling for them. This this that that it's all based on the kind of resentment for not getting back the respect that that the Soviet Union was given. Mm-hmm. So when when Putin gave his kind of famous speech at the Munich conference in 2007 and complained about how reckless the U.S. had been in invading countries and complained about NATO expansion. And then Bush, George W. Bush, comes back almost right away and says, no, we are going to extend uh, an invitation ultimately for NATO membership to Ukraine and Georgia like that. Uh, my sense is that kind of drove him crazy. I mean, not quite crazy, but that's the kind of thing he really that would have had a big psychological impact on him. Yeah, that's for sure. The recognition of Kosovo independence. So the, you have a succession of events, right? The, the NATO bombing of Serbia at 99. the end of the 90s were the big elements. Then mm-hmm. U.S. invading Iraq. Then the NATO expansion. Then Kosovo independence. Then Libya and the way Gaddafi regime collapsed. And then Syria. And for them, it's a kind of accumulation of, okay, we don't really understand how the international system function. It seems sometimes the U.S. are allowing themselves more than what they are allowing to the other. And if we, you don't res, you don't respect our own boundaries, we will also stop kind of mm-hmm. negotiating in a nice way. So that's the Russian perception. So Syria was taken as, a, as some kind of sign of disrespect. That's because we kind of supported a proxy war against one of their client states. Was that the idea? No, it's really, it's the idea of supporting like street revolution against an established regime. Regime change. Yeah. yeah. So it's really the regime change and this idea, okay, if they do that in the Middle East, they will do that in Russia the day it would be possible for them to do that. Now, this gets back to Putin's ideology and his, his, the sense in which he is or isn't a nationalist. He puts a lot of emphasis on national sovereignty which actually the UN Charter did too. And in fact, he referred to the UN Charter in his uh, 2007 Munich conference speech. And, and this, uh, so that's a, that's a bit, is that a big deal with him just because he personally fears regime change or, or what? Like, where does that, again, it's not uncommon. It's part of the UN Charter. In a, in a way, it's not a big mystery, but do we know why that is so important to him, the respect for, uh, and of course, it sounds ironic now because Ukraine was a sovereign nation and he just invaded it. So, but leave that aside. Uh, just just focusing on his professed ideology. Uh, how did that come to be such a big part of it? I think it's much more than just kind of a protection against regime change policy. It's this idea that nation exists as entity. You know, a kind of historical living being that need to be respected. So it's a very 19th century, you know, vision of the nation in action and sovereignty is the kind of the maximum of what a nation can get. And 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 I think it's also linked to the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and this impression that in the 90s, the Russian state was so weak that it was almost unable to protect its own sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And so now that it has been regained, it should be protected at any price. And it's also difficulties of the Russian political establishment to understand international institution, you know, supranational institution, multilateralism. They, it's not a framework they like to work with. They prefer to yeah. work in a very Westphalian understanding that its nation is sovereign 
at home, of course, to protect the regime in power, but also because you have a, a culture or a civilization that should be respected in itself and not be kind of uh, 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 pressured by other normative systems. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so your one your one book is called "Is Russia Fascist." Um, Let's talk a little about what you're addressing there. But can you start out with a definition of fascist? Because it's a it's a term that gets used a lot. And I gotta say, I still don't have a super clear idea of what it means. It gets it gets thrown around very loosely in a kind of accusatory way, and 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 so on. What 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 are the hallmarks of actual fascism? Yeah, I think that's one of the problem of the term is that it's mostly used as a kind of labeling techniques that is not telling us a lot. And then it's also used as a way to describe any kind of non-democratic regime that we don't like. And so that's not a very kind of constructive notion. For me, fascism really means that you have a mythology of regenerating the nation through violence. So you need war and you need a kind of myth of regeneration of of the, the nation, of, of the whole world. And that's, for me, that's the key element. And then you can be authoritarian, repressive, of course, but if you don't have the kind of regeneration mythology mm -hmm. through violence, for me, then it's not fascism. It's uh, any kind of authoritarian or dictatorial regime. And there are plenty, many ways of being authoritarian or dictatorial. You can have a military you know, regime that doesn't really have this kind of revolutionary regenerative aspect that you need hmm. to qualify for fascism. So this kind of glorification of war is the main thing that distinguishes fascism from other forms of authoritarianism and 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 kind of statist. I mean I guess there are other things, right? Like like there tends to be a pretty statist economy uh right like and things like that. But but if you yeah, look and, at all and the, a strong yeah. a strong paramilitary also, or strong militia uh, culture that I uh, think is also an important element because that's the way you get the kind of grassroots element of, you know, the, the nation is in transformation of its own body itself and it's kind of getting empowered. So you the, the militia aspect is also an important one, I think. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm going to guess on the basis of that that... that uh, well, you tell me. Tell us the answer to the question, is, is Russia fascist? Uh, well, so in my book, I'm trying, the, the, so the book was published in 2021. I'm, I'm trying to explain that Russia is not fascist, but that the terminology of illiberal works better to define the Putin regime at that time. And then I try to look at the different elements that would qualify for fascism, like, you know, which kind of far right is active in Russia, the, connect, the fact that Russia has been supporting the European far right and the US far right, the fact that Russia has a very strong militia culture. And so I'm concluding by saying, no, the, the Russian regime in itself is still illiberal, and but you have pockets of in this, inside the societies of the regime that are more fascist, but the, the kind of center of gravity of the regime is not fascist. With the war, of course, things have changed. And I think now in Putin's speeches, in the um, Russian Orthodox Church speech, speeches, you, you see elements that would qualify for this uh, definition of fascism. But I think the Russian state itself is still not. So, for, of course, it's a new level of repression that we have been seeing in Russia since, since February 24. But I wouldn't say the society 
is entirely now in a kind of fascist mindset. You don't have mobilization very much in favor of the war. People are very demobilized. And the regime is not interested in really mobilizing them, activating by, by them. By mobilization, because- you you mean uh, a, a full-scale draft and getting uh, individual citizens to contribute to the war in various ways, or yes. So both the military, the the mobilization of men did not happen, and I think the regime is trying to avoid it because then that would really create tension with the society, and also the more kind of ideological mobilization. It's, it's done in very Soviet repressive mechanism, but you cannot really say that you have a huge, you know, like enthusiasm for the war among Russian citizens, as you would mm-hmm. imagine, you know, fascist Italy or Nazi Germany. You don't really have this kind of exaltation of the war now by average citizen. And the regime is also trying to be so more repressive, but trying not to shift too much toward this kind of narrative of regeneration. But as I said, I think there is a party of war at the Kremlin. I think there are people now inside the whatever in the Kremlin, kind of the different military factions that are very close to fascism, if not that are fascist now on the way mm. that they think that the war in Ukraine is regenerating the nation. But I still mm. think that it's not the way it is seen by the majority of you know government officials. Mm-hmm. Do you do you make what do you have to say about this guy that you hear a lot uh, about now, Alexander Dugan, who is uh, some people claim that, you know, he's some kind of like philosopher or something. I don't I don't know. Uh, But he uh, some people say he has an influence on on Putin and some people say actually he doesn't. Uh, Just quickly, can you give us your take? Like, first of all, like, is he a fascist? And, And secondly, how much influence does he have in Russia? Yeah, so Dugin, for me, is a is a fascist thinker. He has been really referring to all the classic texts and notions of, you know, European fascism, the Italian, the, the Nazi one. So he's a very classic uh, figure of, of a fascist ideologist adapted to the Russian uh, cultural context. But I belong to those who consider he doesn't have any influence on, on the Putin's regime. He has been pretty marginalized since like at least 10 years now, or at least since, since the, the uh, um, maybe let's say at least eight years after the, the uh, Crimea was, was taken by, annexed by, by Russia, is now pretty marginalized. He has a small crowd, but he's not really someone who can access the Kremlin network and really be influential. He's really a very complex, you know, ideologist. It's difficult to read. It's very occultist, esoteric. It's really kind of, you know, big metaphysical discussion. It's not an ideology that you can sell, you know, to to kind of uh, administrator and civil servants that have a Soviet background and for whom it just it just doesn't really make make a big sense. It's too complicated to be instrumentalized as a state policy. Okay. Um, now there's concern in America about kind of a global network of authoritarians. And there's kind of, I think, in a way, two dimensions to it. One is that ever since Trump, people have been, especially in America, especially concerned about kind of right-wing movements in European countries uh, and possible connections between them and Russia, possible synergy between them and Russia. And then somewhat separately, there's the kind of Russia-China connection and 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 somewhat separately, the concern that China wants to build a global network of uh, you know authoritarian countries or something. Now I know, um, I know you're not a China expert, but what would you say about Russia in this 
regard. I, I mean, uh, I, I'm sure that right now Putin is trying to uh, maximize the what his influence in in Europe, especially now. But I'm sure he's been doing that for some time. And in some ways, you might think that there are, you know, that that say Hungary is a more natural uh, ally than some other European countries. Uh, what what's your take on on what the prospects are for us seeing some kind of ideologically coherent network uh, of of movements in Europe and 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 Russia, you know, or or actual governments? Yeah, so I think there was synergy existing between kind of U.S. European far right groups and the Russian state or the Russian far right group that was really kind of pretty well elaborated. Now, of course, with the war, a large part of that Russian soft power toward populist or far-right groups got largely killed. So all the kind of the populist leader in Europe that were pro-Russian, they cannot really afford to be pro-Russian. Even if Marine Le Pen a few days ago still said that, okay, we will build a new partnership in Russia once the war will be done, but they have to do it in a really much more <laughs> discreet manner because everything related to Russia is really toxic now with the war. Mm-hmm. But if you go really to the kind of radical far-right groups, you still have connection. You still have a lot of uh, uh, kind of neo-Nazi groups that are in admiration with, with Russia, but they can also be in admiration with Ukraine. So the kind of world far-right scene is divided between being pro-Russian or, pro, or pro-Ukrainian, and they maybe go fighting on, 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 on both sides. But I think globally, Russia kind of killed part of its soft power, at least in Europe, Mm-hmm. toward the populist uh, uh, right because of the war. But as you said, I mean, Hungary, Orban got re-elected and is still having a relatively pro-Russian narrative. Serbia also, as I said, Marine Le Pen, even in the French context a few days ago, was pretty open about its, its uh, relationship with Russia. So I think Russia will try to revive or to keep these connections, but they largely got destroyed by the war. And then Mm -hmm. the China angle is another one, because China is not really trying to reach out to European constituencies about values the same Mm -hmm. way Russia is doing, right? It's more about connecting or or changing the world order or the world institution in such a way that there is more room of maneuver for big powers who don't want to be under Western normative pressures. So it's different strategies of being a contrarian of the mm-hmm. the world international order. Russia is a much more direct confrontational, uh, is in a much more direct confrontational strategies. The Chinese strategy is a more long-term one as a, and a more nuanced one. So you're saying Russia is more inclined to look for allies who share ideological uh, emphases with it uh, than China is? Yeah, because China has the economic power. So in a sense, China doesn't Mm -hmm. really need people to love China. They just Mm -hmm. have, you know, so much investment to offer that it's enough to be influential. Russia doesn't have the same economic footprint to offer. What Russia can offer is either kind of ideological connection, mostly far-right populists, but they also have reactivated their leftist narrative, when you look at Russian influence in Africa, in Latin America, it's a very much Soviet type, you know, anti-imperialism, kind of socialist, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, leftist narrative. So they try to play that. And then what they can offer is uh, also more, um, 
diverse. You know, it's not really economic support. It's more kind of so informational support, offshoring mechanism. You know, military support to regimes in trouble. So, the, so their portfolio is a slightly different from the Chinese portfolio of influence, mm-hmm. which is really mostly about economics and, and finance. Now, there's a kind of conservatism that's a very big part of Russia's identity, under Putin, Russians, Russia's identity, right? Like, uh, not so much economic laissez-faire conservatism, but social conservatism. They're not, not you know, they're not, he's not big on LGBTQ and so on, right? And and that's, but I mean, that, that, that fact is something he tries to leverage internationally. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was used first at home to try to pressure the liberal opposition and try to say like the liberal opposition represent only a minority. The majority of the Russian population is socially conservative. But it was really used as a tool to kind of go against the West and saying, look at Europe. It's really a, a, a continent of very kind of a, a degenerated people who all wants to get marriage and they are killing the, the ethnic survival of Christian nations and so on. So that has become a really like a, a strong narrative that the Russian state is producing to export abroad and to present itself like the savior of traditional Christian values against the, 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 the decadent West. And I think yeah. here also that it's a genuine feeling that they believe that a large part of the Russian elites have, I mean, uh, those who are around Putin, that the West is decadent and that Europe is losing its own identity because of migration and because of lack of reproductive mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, capacity. I think that's that's something they genuinely share. So it's a kind of also disillusion toward, you know, the imagine Europe. You also have to represent yourself that all these elites, Russian elites who are in power now, it's people who are in their 50s, 60s, if not older. They were raised under the Soviet regime. And in Soviet time, their representation of Europe was the kind of, you know, mythologized, old-fashioned Europe. And then mm-hmm. now that they were able to go to Europe, they realized, well, Europe is maybe not what they were imagined. So you have this kind of, you know, disappointment uh, uh, aspect that is very important. So the narrative is very much a kind of narrative nostalgic about mm-hmm. what Europe was before. And mm-hmm. Russia would be the last one to still believe in the old Europe and to refuse the new Europe, the post-modern uh, uh, Europe. You, you you mentioned a few minutes ago that, you know, far-right movements in Europe could connect with the far-right in Russia or and or the far right in Ukraine. How big is the far right in Ukraine? I mean, you know, the, the, in other words, how much is Putin exaggerating? Uh, how how strong do you think the, well, the far right is and how much of that can accurately be described as neo-Nazi and what kind of influence does it have on the government and so on? Yeah, that's really a difficult question. It was already a sensitive one and now it's really difficult to know uh, um, how it's working. I mean. In terms of election, electoral success, the Ukrainian far right has almost had really, really minimal electoral success. So as kind of political parties, they are nothing, mm-hmm. right? And they were almost nothing. Then you have this kind of militia culture that you have also in Russia. That was pretty strong, especially after 2014 with all this as of battalion, which have a lot of ethnic Russians or Russian speaking Ukrainians in them. 
right? Really? So, the, so the Azov Battalion has a lot of ethnic Russians. It has a lot of ethnic Russian and Russian-speaking Ukrainians who are part of it. Absolutely, because it is perceived in Russia, presumably, as very anti-ethnic Russian, right? And trying to extinguish the culture of ethnic Russians in exactly. Ukraine. Exactly. Yes, that's one of the contradictions that the Azov Battalion is much more diverse. That 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 the the Russia wants to represent it, and then now you have a lot of discussion between scholars. Some said that all this kind of far right aspect of the Azov Battalion has kind of disappeared now that it was at the beginning. That now it's just a kind of you know civilian militia participating in the war uh, um, uh, uh, effort. I think there are still some far right groups inside these different militia, like people with genuine far right conviction and with a kind of you know, Nazi symbolic that you have a lot in any mercenary culture. So I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's very specific to, 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 to Ukraine. You also have that in the Russian mercenary culture, you know, like a lot of Celtic cross or, you know, all this kind of heavy symbolism coming from, from Nazi Germany. And so it's always difficult it, to know. By what the way, is, is, part- is, that, is that true of the Wagner group? Yes. Yes, the Wagner group also had a lot of uh, 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 kind of neo-Nazi oriented people. And he also is just part of the mercenary culture, I think, globally all over the Mm. world. So it's always difficult if it's just a kind of aesthetic, you know, of the muscular body and so on, or if it's really genuine neo-Nazi like conviction. I think there are uh, neo-Nazi groups and people in this mercenary culture in Ukraine, but as I said, it's not specific to the mercenary culture in Ukraine. It's a more global phenomenon. So the Russian narrative mm-hmm. about like Zelensky would be entirely controlled by neo-Nazi group. I, I don't think it's based on anything serious, at least nothing that has been really demonstrated in a kind of scholarly manner. Okay. So um, in terms of uh, this question of, of Putin trying to you know, build networks uh, in, in Europe, maximize his influence, you said that he would naturally be inclined to try to appeal to, you know, socially conservative elements, also, um, you know, presumably illiberal, illiberal elements, relatedly. How much of that is reactive? In other words, you said his imperialism is kind of reactive. You know, if if you look at Putin uh, 20 years ago, he seemed entirely happy with the idea of getting along with all these liberal democracies in Europe. He, he didn't he didn't seem to want to pick and choose. He didn't seem particularly interested in 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 changing the prevailing ideology in in Western Europe. So is, is this another example like his imperialism where we're seeing something that is a as a as a reaction to something else he tried kind of not working or what? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it has been a progressive construction, this illiberalism of the Russian regime, as a result here also of the failure of Russia to integrate in the world community or to get recognized at the level they wanted to be recognized. So it's mm-hmm. really a disappointment. Okay, we, we were hoping we would become liberal or more or less liberal, and that would be enough to be recognized as the great power and have our sphere of influence. And then if we don't get that, then it means liberalism has failed geopolitically and also has failed as an ideology. And in that case, if you are not welcome, then we will go back and create something that is where we don't have to adapt, mm-hmm. right? I think there is a very strong feeling that Russia was forced to accept normative 
vision of the world coming from the West, and that was too much on the Russian societies and the Russian elites. And so illiberalism is a way to kind of liberate yourself from this kind of Western domina domination of norms. What, what, what were the normative, specific normative things that he feels the West was trying to force on him? You, you mean just thoroughgoing democracy and, and liberal democracy or? Yeah, like, like, like um, pluralism, like right of interference is, of course, a big thing in the Russian political culture that, that the West was using, you know, uh, uh, NGOs as the way to say, well, if you don't respect your civil society right, then we have a kind mm -hmm. of right to say or to penalize you or to put you under sanction or to support your liberal opposition financially. So it's all this, which he also, it's both true and constructed. Uh, uh, mythology, yeah. right? To say that, okay, Russia was not given enough of its own space to exist politically and to move toward democracy at a slow pace. But that's, of course, right. it's a it's a usual narrative for, for authoritarian regime to say that they shouldn't be forced to democratize. Yeah. So it, it, it sounds like, I mean, there's maybe more, I, I mean, another way to describe part of the dynamic that's different, I think, is to say he tried to join the Western club and he feels he was rejected. I mean, that's not exactly what, what you're saying, but there is some of that, right? I, I mean, those are, those are kind of two different scenarios because I, you're saying he, wasn't, he didn't want to fully join the Western club. He, di he didn't want to adopt all the values and all the ideology of the West, uh, but he didn't he didn't mean them any harm, right? I mean, I mean, he was. It was like live and let live is what he wanted, uh, including thoroughgoing economic engagement, presumably. Uh, so, I don't know. It, it's it sounds like it's a combination of feeling rejected and not and feeling the values were being foisted on Russia. Yeah, but I think the geopolitical aspect of like we have been rejected was much more important than the the, the cultural interpretation. So this idea that liberalism is failing at the philosophy, it's arrived later. The first feeling, the first impression was like Russia cannot make it geopolitically at the level it would like to be recognized. And also always remember that in the mm -hmm. Russian perception, Russia is not hasn't lost lose the, the Cold War, right? right? Russia itself accepted the Cold War or the Iron Curtain to fail. And so Russia has co-created the post-Cold War order and therefore should be legitim a legitimate co-creator of the new world order. And mm -hmm. they feel they haven't been considered as co-creator. And that's what they challenge first. And mm -hmm. only after comes the, the kind of philosophical arguments about liberalism is failing and, mm -hmm. and decadent. I guess one thing I'm getting at is I'm trying to imagine if, if the West had played its cards differently and things had worked out differently, can you imagine a world in which he would not have felt threatened by Ukraine joining the European Union? Well, it's it's uh, it's of course uh, always difficult to do this kind of yeah history fiction. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think there would be probably in the 90s, there was windows or early 2000 windows of opportunity that we missed for different reasons, where we could have another kind of European securities in which Russia wouldn't feel threatened by, by uh, Ukraine joining EU, not NATO, mm -hmm. but EU. But the, the issue of NATO made the 
EU a more sensitive issue in a certain sense. I mean, I mean, it's like everything that made him feel threatened made added to the the sense the general sensitivity. Yeah, that- absolutely. And and in a sense, joining EU would be much more important for Ukraine than joining NATO because in right. terms of you know political development, stability, prosperity, it's EU that matter, not NATO. Mm-hmm. But on the Russian side, the symbolic power is really about NATO expansion because it's really like like okay, if you have military bases on Ukrainian territory, it's too much for what Russia can accept. Mm-hmm. Right, so they are really focused on the military aspect and less on the EU aspect, which for me confirmed that what really matters for them is geopolitics more than democracy. Right, if if Ukraine is a democracy inside the EU but demilitarized, I think they are fine. But demilitarized, I think the Russians would be fine with that. Yeah. Um... Well, so then there was a lost opportunity. Then this war, if that's true, then this war was definitely not necessary because uh, uh, because NATO NATO expansion was totally under America's control. Our presidents were warned time and time again that it was an extremely sensitive issue, not just with Putin, but with the entire Russian national security elite. Um, and uh, and it sounds like you think it was important. Do you, um, do you have any sense for? At what point it was too late? I, I mean, uh, there, there's, uh, you know, there were some of us who, who were wishing that America would have put the issue of NATO on the table as as late as January, early February, and see what whether anything was possible. On the other hand, when I heard Putin's speech in, in mid February, he sounded like he was, <laughs> he, he, you know, he might have lost his patience some time ago. He was in, a, he would seem pretty overwrought. Uh, do you have a, a sense for when time ran out in terms of uh, a deal that could have been done that would have prevented the war? Yeah, I think it's difficult to know, but in the the kind of declassified document that were released like a, a, a few weeks ago, I, I remember reading that the Pentagon saying that probably Putin keep all options open until pretty late, like mm-hmm. really end of January, early February, Everything was ready for the invasion, but the final decision was not made. And so I think it has been like there have been several stages. I think one of the key stages was like a few years ago when they realized that the Minsk agreement would not be implemented by Zelensky. When, because at the beginning, they were very optimistic when Zelensky got mm-hmm. elected. And then they got disappointed. And then when they realized, OK, Minsk agreement will not happen. There is no way we can put the NATO issues on the table except if we seem to be moving toward the the, the military uh, uh, aspect. So I think they kind of progressively build, you know, several options. And so at the end, the options are you don't have, you have only one uh, 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 remaining and that's that's the worst one. But I think they would have been, if we would have been clear about saying, okay, no NATO expansion, that would have, I think, slowed them down, but they would still have been the tension in Donbass and the Minsk agreement. Mm-hmm. aspect that they would have put on the table in any case. And the Minsk agreement would have uh, given uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, kept them in Ukraine, but given them a kind of autonomy that I that uh, I guess Kiev feared would uh, give them veto power over things like NATO membership. From Russia's idea, point of view, that was the idea, right? It was a way it was a way of structurally making it basically impossible for Ukraine to join NATO without getting NATO to necessarily sign off on it. That's what Minsk would have done. 
Exactly, exactly. And I think so the, the Russian way are thinking to, to, in two directions. If we can get an agreement with the US saying no NATO expansion, it's good. If not, then we have we put pressure on Ukraine through the Minsk agreement to be sure Ukraine cannot make it in any case because there is mm -hmm. this kind of federal system that give a veto power to the, the, the pro-Russian mm -hmm. uh, entities. But they failed on both lines, yeah. right? I, I, you know, the picture you're painting is very different from the one that seems to be taking hold in America right now. I mean, you're in Washington. You may have a sense for it, but increasingly people are talking as if, you know, there's nothing we could have done about this. Putin has been an imperialist for a long time and so on. I mean, you've seen some of the writing of Ian Applebaum probably. Uh, uh, well, first of all, do you agree? I mean, you're, is that your, is, is your sense that the, the, the basic, the narrative emerging in America is a pretty long way from the truth here. Yeah, and I know. I mean, the minority on that clearly uh, on the, uh, the 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 U.S. vision. But yeah, I think that it was not written that the war was not written, and that even if Russia had a kind of still strong, you know, imperial culture toward its neighbor, really considering like, well, they cannot make it very much alone. Ukrainian culture, it doesn't really exist. It was mostly a kind of, you know, very classic colonial picture, you know, vision of the center by the center of the periphery, but it was not necessarily to get translated into that kind of political action. And I think the decision to invade, it's really for me, it was not written and it could have been avoided. And there were several ways where Russia was hoping to kind of avoid Ukraine moving away, especially through the Minsk agreement that would have avoided that. But I know I'm the minority in thinking that clearly here, because here now the vision is to kind of reconstruct retrospectively, the Putin's regime as having no other strategy than the war. And I think it's a mistake mm -hmm. because I think it was not written. And are you uh, connected in Washington circles in a way that would give you insight into the question of why the Biden administration was not willing to talk seriously about NATO expansion to Putin as the invasion was approaching, which seems to pretty clearly be the case. They, they, were, they, were, they were willing to say, don't you understand NATO is a defensive alliance? And look, we don't really have any immediate plans to, you know, Ukraine's not going to join for a while, but they weren't, they weren't willing to make any kind of commitment. Do you have any sense for why that was? I think there, there, there are different groups here also. And so there was kind of conflicting messaging coming from different sides. If it's, you know, the Congress, the White House, the Department, Defense Department, they all have kind of different readings and you have different political groups. And so it was impossible to kind of get one voice to, to be able to put that on the table because it was considered as something. I think the U.S. wanted to keep the strategic ambiguity as long as possible as a tool. And sometimes strategic ambiguity is a good tool, but in that case, it was not. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a mistake. And also for me, being originally from France and knowing that both France and Germany was like no NATO expansion to Ukraine, it's even not on the table. Mm -hmm. I think there was a, we missed a moment where we could have said that and said there are many other things we can do with Ukraine. There are many other ways we can help Ukraine to develop and integrate with the West that are not NATO. And we, in a sense, we let ourselves being only focused on that NATO things mm -hmm. plus the strategic ambiguities, and then we got we got what we got, the war. And of course, there's also a question of what was it within Ukrainian politics that made it hard to stick with the Minsk agreement, which apparently it was something. I, I don't know, but 
Yeah, but also, I mean, it's it's understandable that for a, the Ukrainian political elites of Zelensky, signing the Minsk agreement would have created so much dissension inside the Ukrainian societies and the political elites. And so, in a sense, we never empowered Zelensky enough to get to. If we would have said, okay, no NATO expansion, so let's be clear, so let's imagine uh-huh. something else to help you then we would have given him more power to tell his own society, guys, mm. we won't get NATO, so let's move on and think something else. But because we didn't say it clearly to the Ukrainian, we also didn't help Zelensky yeah. telling it to the own society. Because if you look at surveys, the Ukrainian societies until the war was pretty much divided on NATO expansion. It was like 50-50. Yeah. So they could have you know, like say, okay, we won't get NATO expansion, guys, let's don't stop talking about that. Let's move to something else and discuss with like a EU, you know, accession process and so on. That would have been also a way to, to go. And I think we like, he also, we meet the opportunity and we didn't help Zelensky trying to make that move. Mm-hmm. Well, it's sad. Uh, I mean, I just don't, I, right now, I don't see. Well, that's kind of an understatement to say. I don't see this working out well. It just seems like there's no clean end to the war in sight. That that solves the problem, right? Like uh, an actual deal that clarifies things and and uh, and and re- and resolves the tension. Not to mention the possibility that the war will spin out of control. Now we're recording this on April twentieth. It won't air for a few days until early next week uh god knows what the situation will be then but do you you share my sound looks like you share my pessimism you're nodding your head yeah no i think we we have no solution in 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 view it can really escalate i think in a much more dramatic way also with kind of nuclear threats uh, mm-hmm. arriving into the discussion i think we should also be really be prepared to a, a, a long war you know a war with different phases a kind of mm-hmm. israel palestine type of conflict, you know, where, okay, sometimes it's stable, there are some tension in one of the borders, sometimes it's hot, sometimes hot war, sometimes it seems to be stabilized, and it can be like that for years. At least that's the way I I think that's one of the scenarios we we could be, which would be, of course, dramatic for Ukraine, but for the Mm -hmm. whole of Europe. Mm -hmm. Okay, final question on kind of another, to uh, to get back to some things we were talking about. Uh, In terms of you know the extent to which if any ideology determines kind of alliances among nations and and and, and including uh, and, and networks involving russia and other countries you've made the point that if ideology were everything you would expect poland to be among the friendlier nations toward russia because it's pretty it's in a pretty illiberal phase but but we see kind of the opposite right Exactly. And I always use Poland as a good example to say that this ideological synergy, they don't necessarily work. They don't work if you have geopolitical tension, which is the case with Poland. They work. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's not about Russian influence. It's what I call confluence, right? That you have confluences of interest. And in that case, ideology add one more layer that make the relationship smoother. But if you have geopolitical tension, geopolitics is more important than ideology, and you see it with Poland. I mean, the Poland is much more illiberal than Russia in terms of social conservatism. I mean, abortion is forbidden. That's not the case in Russia. So, I mean, the Russian regime is more repressive and authoritarian, but the, the, the Polish regime is more conservative. 
and that doesn't create any kind of links. Of, on the contrary, it's kind of the geopolitical divide now is really like uh, absolute. Hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time. Is there anything else you want to say that we haven't gotten to? Uh, I, I mean, again, your your prolific author uh, is Russia fascist. I think is the most recent book that you alone have written. You co-authored a book about the same time, and then uh, your book Russian nationalism uh, was twenty eighteen, a few years earlier. Uh, anything you anything else you want to you want to say about your books or what you're working on now or anything? No, no, I think we went over also really a lot of different topics. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really, I really uh, appreciate your work. And, uh, and maybe, uh, well, I hope this war doesn't go on so long that I'll ask you back yeah. to talk about it, but maybe we'll talk again about something. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you so much, Bob. Okay, bye-bye.